I would have said to Nancy Pelosi, amen? And uh, But she needs the gospel. Uh, you can find your place in Exodus chapter 32, and while you find your place there, I want to share with you something that I heard a preacher say the other day that came to my mind when I was hearing Miss Ina's testimony. He was preaching a message on, on this being the hour of darkness. You remember in uh, the Gospel of Luke, the Lord says to the high priest and, and to the Roman legions that came to, to arrest him, said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And uh, what he was saying is that this was a time when they held power, they held authority, they held sway in that situation. And he was acknowledging that in the, in the heart of God, God had permitted this time so that he would go to the cross of Calvary. And he was acknowledging that uh, to them. And the preacher was making application, I believe rightly so, to the darkness of the world we're living in. And we look around as Christians sometimes, we scratch our head and we say, you know, why are things so wicked? Hey, listen, this is their hour. Things are not going to get better, they're going to get worse. Uh, this is their hour, and this is the power of darkness. Uh, our world is a dark place. There's a lot of wickedness going on in the world today, and, and I don't think it's, if I read my Bible right, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. Uh, the preacher made application then in this way, and I'll share this with you and then we'll get to our message. He gave three things, and I won't share all three of them, but he said things that we need to do during this hour and during the power of darkness. And the first one that he said was, don't forget to have compassion on the sinner. And he pointed to Christ healing the high priest's servant, Malchus. Peter took a sword and went to lop his head off, and the Lord reached down and picked up that ear and put it right back on his head and healed him and told Peter to put up his sword uh, the preacher made this statement, said, you know, here was a man that was there doing his job. He didn't know any better. He thought he was a religious person. He thought he was doing what was right by being there that night. And he isn't even there because he wants to be necessarily. He's there because that is his job. He's the servant of the high priest. And isn't it always funny? Hey, listen, a man can't hear the gospel real well with his ear cut off. What was going to change that man's life was going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, sometimes we get awful mad at lost people for being lost people. Uh, we get awful mad at lost people. I'll just say it again. We get awful mad at lost people for being lost people. We say, boy, it makes me so mad they're doing this and they're doing that. Well, they're lost. They don't know Christ. You'd be living that way if you didn't know Christ. You might be worse than what they are. And you say, well, preacher, what can we do about them? Well, listen, don't forget to have compassion even in these times. It's so easy. They've tried to divide us up and put us on teams. I'm not saying there aren't real meaningful disagreements in society about things. I recognize there are. But you know, in God's economy, there's, there's two different groups of people. There's lost folks and saved folks. And what we need to be doing is everyone that's lost, we need to be trying to get them saved. And we need, we need to be reminded that that's what they are. They're lost folks. They're living like lost people do, like you would or like I would in that situation. I understand the anger. I understand the frustration. I understand. I, I want to do like Peter does. Off with their head. You know, I want to grab up the sword and go and charge into war. But you know, the Lord knows better than we do. Now he then turned around and rebuked those that were reprobates. But for the man that was there just doing what he didn't know any better but what to do, the Lord was compassionate to him. And that's what that's what came on to my mind. If I had my way, of course you can't say anything now. NSA's listening to everything, but I'll just say it this way. That's a lot nicer than what I would have wrote back. But you know, what she did is exactly what we all need to do for lost people. We need to love them. We need to look on them with compassion. We need not despise them. 
this has become a bad problem in the church today. We've allowed politics to dictate our disposition towards a lost and dying world. We have compassion on a man that is lost but holds our political beliefs. We have no compassion towards a person that's lost and holds the opposite political belief. By the same token, we're all for forgiving of those that uh, are, are lost but hold our political beliefs. We'll make all kinds of excuses for it. But if they're lost and they don't hold our political beliefs, we'll, let's just take their head off. Amen. Uh, let me say this. If they're saved and hold their own political beliefs, sometimes uh, we treat them worse than they would if they was a lost person. Here's what I'm saying. We need to view things the way God views things. We need to view them the way God views things. Exodus chapter 32. Now, let's preach a message and uh, let's see if we can get the mind of God this evening. I believe we have it. I believe we want to uh, share with you what God has laid on our heart. Exodus chapter 32. Let's begin reading in verse number one. This is a pretty familiar passage of scripture. I think to most students of the Bible, the uh, children of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has been up on the mount receiving the law of God. And the Bible says that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your, the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you'd bless your word, that you'd use it to speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, we are the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we are your, uh, we are your responsibility, Lord, and you are our God and we just lay ourselves before you tonight. Let us have the right attitude and spirit towards you as you would uh, take your word and wield it to speak to us about our lives and our condition that we might be drawn closer unto thee. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you for a few moments tonight on this thought, the gods that we make. The gods that we make. When I use the term gods there, I'm using the term little g, gods. For we know that there's only one true God. We know that He's the God of the Bible. There is one God uh, in three persons of the Trinity. All of them co-equal. All of them co-eternal. All of them co-existent. We understand that these uh, three persons of the Trinity, they comprise one God. The God of the Bible. But we find in Exodus chapter number 32 that while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, 
the children of Israel are down at the foot of the mountain making themselves gods. Now it's fascinating to me to think that a people so freshly redeemed and delivered from Egypt's bondage, a, a, a people that have witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, yeah, they've been, they've parted themselves, they've walked through on dry ground. They've seen the pillar of fire. They've seen the pillar of cloud. They've seen Egypt's armies destroyed by the high hand of God. That these people at the foot of this mountain, while God is giving His law, while the thunderings and the lightnings and the fire and the smoke and all these things are transpiring, that these people would turn and look to Aaron and say, let's make us some new gods so that we can get out of here and go on living our life the way that we want. When we talk about the crafting of gods in a person's life, there's a Bible word for it, and it's the word idolatry. Now, typically throughout human history, idolatry has been associated with the idea of creating tangible things and saying, this is a God and we will worship it. And that certainly is what they're doing in Exodus 32. They make this golden calf. They say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. We're going to serve this God. We're going to worship this God. But you know, I found this, that though we live in a day today that is highly secularized and humanistic in nature, meaning it is it is not a religious world in the world that we live in today. Idolatry still exists, but it seems to have taken a slightly different form. It seems today that the idolatry that exists is one of man seeking to have independence and control of his own life and allowing things to take the place of God in his or her life. In other words, idolatry is still around. We just don't carve little idols and, and put them on our fireplace. Or maybe you do. I don't know. But uh, most people do not do that. Most people, other than Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics, uh, of course, pray to idols of Mary and, and Buddhists pray to a, you know an idol of Buddha. But the average individual, particularly here in the West, if they're not Roman Catholic, they're probably not praying to an actual graven image. But nevertheless... We have things in our life that have displaced God in our priorities and we treat them like the God of our life. If you want to know what somebody's worshiping, just look at what they can't live without. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are things that it'd be hard for me to live without. I mean, listen, if the Lord took my wife or took my family, it'd be a crushing thing. If the Lord took my church, our church, and wouldn't allow me to be the pastor anymore, it'd be a, it'd be a crushing thing. If the Lord took my health, it'd be a crushing thing. But in all those things, the Lord will give me grace and strength to go on. But I wonder tonight what it is in our life that we have decided we cannot live without. What is it that we have made a God unto ourselves? I've got three simple thoughts I want to share with you tonight that I find from this passage. And I think they sort of speak to the gods that we worship. Now, gods could be family, could be a loved one, uh, could be children or grandchildren, could be money, could be prosperity, could be prominence or power or success or any number of things. But it's really, it's anything that we worship and love more than we worship and love the God of the Bible, more than we worship and love Jesus Christ. And so reading what these people do, it gives me some insight as to why people become idolaters and the things that they worship, why they worship those things. Notice these three thoughts with me. When I read this passage, the first thing I notice is the cause of their idols. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Uh, the Bible says, or we'll just read verse 1, it says that uh, when the people saw that Moses was delayed, that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron. 
and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. Now in the very next verse, Aaron gives instruction of them to give their golden earrings and to give the materials to make the idol. But here in this one verse, we have encapsulated why they pursued after idols in the first place. Number one, I want you to notice, it was because of their impatience. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, they said, uh, the Bible says, when Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain. You remember, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people began to get a little antsy. Maybe they felt exposed out there uh, in the desert. Maybe they felt at the foot of Mount Sinai as though they had no place to run or to flee if an enemy fell upon them. Maybe they were just simply uncomfortable being that close to the presence of God. But for whatever reason, they didn't like being there. And they were ready to move on to other places. They could not move on without Moses lest they were abandoning their God. They understood that Moses was on the mountain talking with God. If they were going to abandon Moses, they'd have to abandon their God. So they said, that's exactly what we'll do. Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. And here, can I summarize it for you? They said, we can't wait around all day for Moses to show up. Let's just go ahead and get a new God and get on down the road and start living our life. You know why a lot of people create idols in their life? Because of impatience. Maybe I could say it this way, the term independence. They wanted to go on their own schedule, on their own time, and do their own thing. They weren't going to allow anything as paltry as God to slow them down. You know, there's a lot of people that live life that way. If God is willing to rubber stamp their plans, they're fine with God riding along. But the moment that the will of God and the will of themselves begins to clash and conflict, they decide it's time to get a new God. I wonder if you love God more than you love your own plans, dreams, and ambitions. Now listen, we all have things that we desire to do and all of us crave control over our own lives. This is an element of human nature. We all want to run ourselves. But can I remind you what the Lord said in the book of Matthew? He says, no man can serve two masters. Uh, you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon, which was a way of speaking of tangible things, the things of this world. In other words, it doesn't say no man can serve no masters. Uh, it, it says no man can serve two masters. God doesn't even put it on the table that you can run your own self. You're going to have a God. The question is just who that God is going to be. Uh, they decided that rather than wait around and do things on God's timing, they'd just go and do it their own way. And if they had to create a new God to do that, then that's what they would do. And the basic fundamental reason most people become idolaters in their Christianity, and listen, there are Christian idolaters. There are Christian idolaters. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen, I and I've already sort of hit on the Roman Catholics and we could say more about that form of idolatry, but that ain't even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there's people that go to church every week, there's people that read their Bibles every day, there's people that pray every day, there's people that have all the hallmarks of Christianity. Uh, maybe they even know the Lord as their personal Savior. They're indwelt by the Spirit of God, but they've allowed something to displace that position of preeminence in their life. And they're following and worshiping something else. Why would a person do that? Well, because they're tired of waiting on God. They want to do it their own way, in their own time, and in their own fashion. At the end of the day, idolatry is it is a deceptive mirage. It is the idea. See, if you create the God, you control the God. That's why people do it. If you create the God, you control the God. Uh, it's part of the reason that false gods are happily tolerated by this world, but the God of the Bible is not. 
Because they understand, mankind instinctively understands that if you create the God, you control the God. So they don't mind you having gods as long as it's gods that they've created. Because then they're gods that they can control. And the reason men create gods is so that they can control them. Have sort of a veneer of religion, of spirituality, of knowing God. But it not have to meaningfully inconvenience their life in any way. Can I tell you, there's times when you serve God, He'll inconvenience you. If He's going to bend your will to His will, there's going to be some inconvenience. There's going to be some times when God asks you to do things you don't want to do, when He leads you in paths you don't want to walk, when He calls upon you to do things you don't feel prepared to do. And I'm just telling you that if you and I are going to serve the God of the Bible, there's going to be times He's going to have to lead the way and we're going to have to let Him have His will and His way and not us have our own will and our own way. I think it was because of impatience. Number two, look what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, verse 1, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. It was their way of saying, We ain't staying here no longer. We want to leave, so we're leaving. And they said this then, For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. Did you Did you notice it when we read it? Did you notice the fundamental mistake they made in what they said? It was not that Moses was gone, for surely he was gone. It was not that they didn't know what had happened to him, because even though they sort of did, they should have known he was where God had met him. They really didn't know where he was. But the real problem in what they said was they said, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They had a wrong perspective on who exactly had delivered them. If they had recognized that it was the God they were getting ready to abandon, that had delivered them out of Egypt, surely they would not have abandoned him in their hearts and minds. I would say it's because of impatience, but number two, it's also because of ingratitude. You know why we create idols? Because we forgot what the true God has done for us. This is a cycle you will see consistently in the Bible as regards Israel. Over and over and over again. This is one of the reasons if you read the book of Judges, you have this sort of cycle. We mentioned it just the other day in the preaching that they would uh, they would be oppressed, they would be subjected uh, by some foreign enemy and, and, and uh, made to be prisoners and slaves of a foreign enemy. And they would cry out to God and God would send a deliverer. He would raise up a judge from the people and use that man to deliver them from their oppressors. And then they would get back close to God and seek God. And then after a little while, they'd forget what God had done for them and they'd backslide against God. They'd start doing their own thing once again. And then the cycle would start all over again. You know why? Because as human beings, we are bent towards ingratitude. God is omniscient and he, he lives not just outside of time. He lives within every moment of time. And everything that God has ever done is as present to him as it ever has been. But to you and I, we forget. We forget. We forget where we were. We forget what God did for us. We forget his grace. We forget his mercy. And when we forget those things, we begin to grow bored and discontented and we move on to other gods. How? How could this happen to him? You'll never find an example of a person in the Bible that gets truly born again, gets up from their knees and then betrays or walks away from Christ. They're always filled, brimming with gratitude within their hearts. And the farther we get from what God has done for us, the more ingratitude we allow to take root in our heart and in our mind. A person becomes an idolater because they forget how good God has been to them. 
It's part of the reason throughout the Bible that, that the command and the, and the example is given over and over again in Israel for them to remember what God has done for them. Whole psalms are given. And remember, these psalms, they're not just a portion of Scripture. They are a portion of Scripture. But that was the songbook of Israel. They, they would sing that when they went to worship. And they would do this. They would recount and recollect and remember the good things that God had done for them. Why is that? Because gratitude engenders worship. When we remember what God's done for us, we worship. And what does that mean when we forget what God's done for us? It means we move farther from Him in our worship. So I see the cause of their idols. Then I want you to notice tonight the crafting of their idols. So we, we know why people do it. Really, basically, we could boil it down. It's because of impatience and independence. They want to run their own life. They don't want to wait on God. They don't want to take God into consideration in how they live. And it's because of ingratitude. They forget all the good things that God has done for them. But then when they begin to create an idol, what do they make it out of? How do they decide what becomes an idol? Well, look what it says in verse number 2. The Bible says, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. You know, the first thing I see here is the substance of the idols that they made. Now, all throughout the Bible, there are different types of idols. There are idols of wood. There are idols of stone. There are idols of various types of, of precious metals. Uh, but here we're told that it was golden earrings, distinctly golden earrings. There's a lot we could probably say about this and about why they had the earrings coming out of Egypt, the culture of Egypt, and how it had, how, how it had crept into their society as a people. But, you know, can I just notice two simple things about it? One they made these idols out of that which was precious to them. It was valuable to them. It was, in fact, we could say the entire, Brother Ken, the entire economy of the nation was what they put into making this idol. We might get into a little political preaching here in a second. But, but suffice it to say, it was the entire economy of their nation. It was that which was most valuable to them. And you know what I find usually in my life? The things that I make, my idols are the things that mean the most to me. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong for things to mean something to us. It doesn't mean God begrudges, uh, begrudges us having things that are precious to us. But it, it, it does show us the danger in allowing those things that are precious to us to be elevated to a place of necessity above God Himself. This is one of the things that Abraham learned in his life when he, uh, in the book of Genesis, praised God above what God had given. He didn't just praise the gift. He praised the giver because he recognized that the giver is of far greater importance than the gift itself. In your life and mine, it's probably not going to be the things we hate that we make idols out of. It's probably going to be the things that we love, the things that we cherish. But you know, I noticed not only was it that which was precious to them, but I noticed it was that which was paltry to God. We read in the Bible that uh, in the New Jerusalem, the very streets themselves are going to be paved out of gold. It'll be treated like common asphalt. And, uh, of course, if you've priced asphalt lately, well, I'm not going to get into that, but it's considered something to be trod upon. Uh, you understand that every ounce of gold that is in this world, God put it there. And when He when He put it somewhere, He didn't put it out in the open where men could admire and behold it. He buried it deep in the earth. That's how high a regard that God has of things like that. But you know, something I noticed too, after this whole thing unfolds in the very next chapter, when God begins to seek to make a way for the children of Israel to not have to be destroyed, you know what He tells the children of Israel to do? To strip off their ornaments. Now, when He uses the word ornaments, He's talking about jewelry. 
And he's saying, I don't want them coming into my presence with those vestiges, with those, with those uh, remnants out of Egypt still upon them. In other words, these were things not only that were paltry to God, but they were preventative to God. It kept them from being able to go into God's presence and deal with Him. That was the very things that they took and made their idols out of. And you know, those are typically the two things we make idols out of. Things that we love that are precious to us or things that we know we should not have, know we should not be engaged in, know we should not be involved in, but we've allowed it to gain a foothold in our life. And even though it's keeping us from the kind of relationship with God that we know we ought to have, we still cling to them and we still maintain so I see the substance of their idols. But then I thought this was interesting. The Bible says in verse number 4, notice it with me, and he, Aaron, received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. Now this is one of the most fascinating phrases in the Bible. And said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, to Jehovah. You know what I find here? Not only the substance of the idols, I find the sanctifying of the idols. So they created these false gods. Aaron immediately knows this is wrong. This is a problem. So he seeks to wash them, to sanctify them, to sort of rub them in a veneer of that which is okay and acceptable so that they can soothe their conscience about it. You know, I've found that people tend to do this about the idols they set up in their life. And they really do it in the same way that they did here. Number one, I want you to notice the lavish praise of the idol. Aaron and, and the children of Israel say something that they know is false. They said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now this is obviously false. This God didn't even exist until these moments. Not only that, the calf worship that they were engaging in was a part of worship in Egypt. Now, God had already on ten different occasions humiliated the gods of Egypt with the ten different plagues that He performed. God made it abundantly clear that it was not the gods of Egypt that had brought them out, but that it was Him, the God of Israel, that had done it. But now, standing at the foot of Sinai, they say, these are the gods that have done it. And listen to the praise they ascribe. They say, not just that it did some good things, not just that it gave us a good day, not just that it blessed us with... They say, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Now, can I just ask this question? They know that's not true. The people they're talking to know that's not true. God in heaven knows that is not true. So who exactly are they trying to convince of this? Who are they trying to convince that this God is real? They're trying to talk themselves into it. You know what I've found in my experience, and you probably have seen this too, when somebody's going the wrong way, they'll be real loud about it. They'll talk incessantly about what a great decision what they're doing is. When they get something in their life that is not how it ought to be, not what it should be, they'll brag on it, they'll heap praise upon it, they'll tell you all the reasons this isn't wrong, it's not bad, look at the good that's coming out of it, look at what God's doing through it, look what God's doing with it. Even though they know what they're engaging in is completely contrary to Scripture, they'll heap praise upon it. They ain't trying to convince you, they're trying to convince them. I would say this, that if we have to defend the God we worship, He's not much of a God. If we have to go in and justify the rightness of everything that we're doing because we know it stands in contradiction of Scripture, that's an indictment against us and against our conscience. I see the lavish praise of 
the idol. But then number two, I see the label they put on the idol. Man, this is amazing. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, to Jehovah, to the God of Israel. Do you see what Aaron did there? The children of Israel come out and said, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. They didn't say nothing about it being Jehovah. But Aaron, when he sees what's happening, realizes it's a problem, understands that his brother's up on the mountain talking to the true God of heaven and earth. He says, we got to do something about this. So he says, here's what we're going to do. This is, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. This molten calf, this is actually Jehovah. And we're going to tomorrow celebrate a feast to Jehovah and worship this calf. What a gross marrying of what is biblical and what is wicked. You know what people sometimes do? I've seen this. You probably have to. Not only do they heap lavish praise on whatever that thing is in their life, be it a decision that is wrong, that is taking them out of the will of God, be it some sin that is in their life that they're engaging in, be it something that is perfectly fine in and of itself, but they've elevated it to a place where it's standing in the way of their service and relationship to God. Whatever it is, the next thing they'll do, they'll put a label on it. They'll try to make it seem godly. They'll try to make it seem Christian. They'll try to make it seem sanctified. I can't tell you the numbers of times. I was a youth pastor for a few years and I can't tell you the numbers of times that young people would come to me and they're dating some boy or they're dating some girl that they know is not the will of God for their life. They know they have no business being with them. And they'd say something like this. Well, preacher, I'm hoping I can reach him. I'm hoping I can reach him. You ain't going to reach him. He's going to reach you. You ain't going to reach her. She's going to reach you. Can I tell you something? God don't need your help. He can reach them if He wants to reach them. And what I'm saying here is people will take all kinds of unrighteous things and put God's name on it and try to sanctify it. Turn on TBN sometime. See if I ain't telling you the truth. Uh, turn on sometime a lot of the wickedness that goes on in the name of Christ in this world today. What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Listen, wouldn't it be better if they just come out as rank idolaters and just say, I don't care what the Bible says or what the God of the Bible says? No, they ain't going to do that because they know it's wrong. So instead, they try to sanctify it by dressing it up and slapping the label of Christianity on it when it doesn't look anything like what Bible Christianity looks like. This is instinctive in man's heart and spirit because we know that we're wrong. And I'm just telling you, you can, you can try to take whatever bad action or bad decision you're making and try to lay on it the, the name God or the name Christian or the label will of God if you want to. But you know and God knows whether you've got peace about that thing. I see the label that they put on the idol. Then I notice not only the substance and the sanctifying of the idols, but I notice the sinfulness of the idols. Here's the test. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. I see the sinfulness of these idols. You want to know whether someone's pursuing a false idol? Does it take them closer to God or farther from God? Does it take them closer to the Bible or far or, or farther away from the Bible? I'll tell you this. Nothing that is of God will make you unbiblical. Nothing that is of God will make you unbiblical. In your actions, in your relationships, in your habits, in your disposition... If it's taking you away from the Bible, then it's not of God. And nothing that is unbiblical is of the Lord. I, I, I see that, that the proof, as they would say, is in the pudding, right? Here's the acid test. Notice two things. One, notice the worship that is stolen. Verse 6 tells us that they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And I think to myself, Brother Charlie, uh, 
think about who they are worshiping and think about who they are not worshiping. Think about who those offerings really belong to. They didn't belong to that golden calf. They belonged to the God that was up on Mount Sinai. They're taking things that belong to God, robbing them from God, and giving them to their idol. And you know, I found that if we really want to know whether we've set up an idol in our life, ask yourself this, what am I robbing from God and giving to my idol? What tithes are you robbing from God and giving towards your idol? What attention are you robbing from God and giving towards your idol? What affection are you robbing from God and giving to your idol? What decisions and authority are you robbing from God and giving to your idol? If you're anything in your life, and I'm, I'm taking for granted here and assuming that we're discussing something that maybe is not inherently sinful. And if we're talking about something that's not inherently sinful, you say, preacher, how do I know if it's just become too much, if it's become too much of, of a priority in my life? I mean, listen, just about anything can be an idol. There wasn't nothing wrong with gold. There wasn't nothing wrong with silver. There wasn't nothing wrong with stone. There wasn't nothing wrong with wood. But they had taken these things and made them idols. It can be something that's perfectly fine to be in your life, just not in the place that it's in in your life. You say, preacher, how do I know? How can I determine? Ask yourself what you're having to rob from God to keep that idol where it is. So I noticed the worship it stole. Number two, I noticed the wickedness that it spread. The Bible says the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. I'm not going to get graphic, but suffice it to say that that term play there has more to do with... They, they weren't playing hopscotch. They weren't playing duck, duck, goose. Uh, what it means is they were engaging in, in, in lewd activities with each other. They had brought Egypt straight to the foot of Mount Sinai and the same things that they were doing in the temples of Isis in Egypt, they were now doing at the foot of the Mount of God at Sinai. And I would say this, uh, you say, preacher, how do I know? Well, look at the wickedness that's spread around. Is it making you more like Christ or less like Christ? Is it causing you to live closer to Him or further from Him? It, it, anything in your life that calls upon you to sin is not of God. If it's a relationship, if it's a job, if it's a hobby, if it calls upon you to disobey the Lord, it's not of God. You need to reassess. So I see the sinfulness of the idols. And then finally, and I'm just going to mention this, be done tonight. I promised myself I would be done at 8 o'clock and I have already broken that promise. But look at the consequence of the idols. The consequence. Three things that I noticed. Look at verse 7 with me. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people. You notice how God did that? God and Moses had this thing about the children of Israel. It's like, like a married couple fighting over kids. When, when they was acting right, God say, My people. But when they was acting a fool, God say, thy people, Moses. Those are your kids down there. And God was right about it. They weren't acting like children of God. And God says, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. I noticed the defilement that these idols brought to them. In other words, they're no longer fulfilling their intended purpose. When we speak of something being corrupted, we mean it has changed, it has perverted, it has distorted from its original intent and purpose. That's what something being corrupt means. It means it was good, but now something's broken, something's warped, something's, something's mingled in that is not pure, that is not right. God said, when I look at them now, they're corrupted. They're corrupted. I brought them out of Egypt and I brought them out to be a people unto myself, but now they're corrupted. They're no longer serving the purpose that I have put them here for. And you know, if you and I allow idols in our life, it'll corrupt us away from doing the will and work of God. 
The reason you and I live is so that we can be glorifying to God, that we can honor Him. That's why we live. We don't, a lot of people's idea of life is that we live so that we can live. And the things that we do are just an, an, an end unto themselves. We're just, you know, we work so that we can live and we live so that we can work and we're just sort of muddling our way through this life that we have. Man, that's not the biblical perspective. The biblical view is you've been put here to bring glory to your Creator. You've been put here to please Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him. And so whatever else you may accomplish in this life, if you deviate from that purpose, if you move away from that cause and goal in your life, you've corrupted yourself. There's a lot of people saved, sanctified, indwelt by the Holy Ghost that have corrupted their lives. Because they're not living for what God has called them to. I see the defilement they brought. Number two, I see the disobedience that these idols brought. God says this in verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. God says, that didn't take long. I mean, we just... We're just the Red Sea's just finally calming down, and they're making idols down here at the foot of Sinai. You know, an idol will always call upon you to walk contrary to the truth of God's word, and God will always instruct you to walk in accordance with the truth of God's word. If you set up an idol in your life, it will not be long, and it will call upon you to do something that defiles your person. Uh, we teach our kids this instinctively. They start running with the wrong crowd. You know what happens to people that run with the wrong crowd? They become the wrong crowd. They become the wrong crowd. Uh, you know, somebody would have looked at the prodigal at one time and said, he's the wrong crowd. Now, thankfully, God was brought him back and the father welcomed him home. And I understand all that, but I'm saying this. He got with that crowd and it wasn't long. They were calling on him to do things that he wasn't supposed to. An idol will not let you maintain your testimony. An idol will not let you maintain your prayer life. An idol will not let you maintain your walk with God. It will make you choose between God or it. You know how I know that? Because that's the very nature of an idol. An idol is something that has taken the place of God in our life. I see the disobedience that these idols brought. And then I see the displeasure that these idols brought. God has some pretty strong language here in verse 9. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. You and I both know if we've studied our Bibles, I do and I trust you do as well. We move on. God doesn't destroy them. Because of the intercession of Moses, they are spared and, and God brings them back into a relationship with Him. But I would just note that God was mad enough in this moment to wipe them off the face of the earth. The displeasure that these idols brought. You know the great tragedy of an idolater is that the, the travesty of their idolatry is something they're never aware of. They've quit caring what God thinks. And so the great tragedy of their life, they're completely oblivious to. And that's that God is displeased with them. There's coming a day the displeasure of God is going to weigh heavily in our values. One of these days we're going to stand before Him and then it's going to matter. But you know what? Then it's going to be too late to do anything about it. The worst part of all of this is that the God that loved them, that redeemed them, that brought them out of Egypt was so sorely grieved by their sin that He was ready to say, I'm going to wipe them all away and start afresh with Moses. The great tragedy of our idolatry is not just that it destroys our marriages and our children and our homes and our families and our churches and our communities and, and our, our, our civilization. All that's sad. 
But the great tragedy of it is that it dishonors and grieves the heart of God. One of these days we'll have to answer to Him for it. I wonder if we've got idols in our life. You say, preacher, what do I do? Tear them down. Tear them down. You say, preacher, how do I do that? My idol is not a physical, tangible idol. Here's where you do it. Down here at an altar. In the altar of your heart. Bow your head, bow your heart before God and say, Lord, I'm sorry I've let this thing get out of hand. Or maybe it's a sin in your life and you need to say, Lord, I'm sorry it's wrong. I sinned. I, I, I disobeyed you. Whatever it is in your life. Go to the Lord about it. And you know what will happen? He'll tear down that idol and you can let Him sit in the throne of your heart in the way that He's supposed to be. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. If God has spoken to your heart, I hope you'll come tonight. I hope you'll speak to Him about whatever it is that He's dealt with you about. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, Melissa will play as soon as